Hey, CNFers, the Creative Nonfiction Podcast is sponsored by Scrivener. Scrivener was created by writers for writers. It brings all the tools you need to craft your first draft together in one handy app. Scrivener won't tell you how to write. It simply provides everything you need to start writing and keep writing. I'm using it now for my insufferable rewrites, and it's amazing. My only regret is not having ponied up for this amazing program sooner. So, whether you plot everything out first or plunge in, write and restructure later, Scrivener works your way. How does a bastard orphan, son of a whore and a Scotsman, dropped in the middle of a forgotten spot in the Caribbean by Providence to Poverty Squad grow up to be a hero in Scotland? Yeah, I learned that. Oh, ho, 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 that's right, CNFers. It's the Creative Nonfiction Podcast, the show where I talk to badass people about the art and craft of telling true stories. I'm Brendan O'Meara. Hey, hey, thanks for carving out some of your valuable time to listen to this humble little show. We've got Roy Peter Clark, America's writing coach, returning to the podcast to talk about his latest book on the craft called Murder Your Darlings, and other gentle writing advice from Aristotle to Zinzer. It is published by Little Brown. He's at Roy Peter Clark on Twitter. This was a fun one. Lots of amazing stuff to get to. I know you're going to be able to run with, be inspired, and just hit, you know, you're just going to get into it. You're going to you're going to take off those headphones eventually, and you're just going to plug, you're going to lock into whatever trip you got going on. Hey, keep the conversation going on Twitter, at CNF Podnapper and the Mayor, would you? This show only grows if it deserves it. And if you think it deserves more attention, please share it with your network. Can, you, know, you know, while you're at it, consider leaving a kind review on Apple Podcasts. Someone deleted their amazing five-star review. I don't know why. Maybe because I read it on the air. I don't know. So in a way, it's archived on the air, but it got deleted from Apple Podcasts, so we need to get it back. And then some. We're so close to 100. Let's get there. Also, be sure to head over to brendanomero.com for show notes and to subscribe to my monthly newsletter where I share reading recommendations, tactical offerings, and what you might have missed from the world of the podcast. I also raffle off books to whoever's on the list. So long as you're on the list and don't unsubscribe, you're effectively entered in a raffle every single month. Pretty cool. First of the month, no spam, so far as I can tell, can't beat it. Oh boy, we're getting down to it, CNFers. I turned 40 on July 1st. It's coming up. And I'm not so much concerned about the number as I am about the progress, or lack thereof, I've made in those 40 years. I mean, physically, I feel about the same as I did when I was 25, no joke. I'm every bit as strong, even stronger, by and large, I still own clothes that fit me from when I was in college, and I still wear now. I mean, say what you will about my style and how that's changed in 20 years, but that stuff still fits me. That's something. Sure, it's harder to lose some of the poundage on account of a slowing metabolism and a voracious appetite for the finest IPAs this land offers, but I'm lucky in that regard. Can't complain. A lot of people got it a whole lot worse than I do. But career-wise, I don't know. It's not so good. If my 25-year-old self saw me now, he'd probably blow his brains out. You know, I'm tired of not making any money. I know money isn't the be-all and end-all, but we need it, right? I'm ramping up the freelancing game to write for some brands, brand magazines, companies. And also doing some podcast producing in the content marketing vein. It's just a different kind of shingle. But also doing, of course, the journalistic features I come to love, the stuff that I got into this thing, this racket, in the first place. A lot of the things that the people who come on this show do, the people I love to celebrate, the stuff I want to do, the stuff I unpack with them, you know, that's the stuff that really that really charges charges my battery, so to speak. So, in any case, that's happening. You know, I want to get this podcast growing. It's, uh, you know, it's 
It, I, I think it needs to be in front of more people. I'm so grateful for the audience, but you know how it is. We always want a little bit more. But anyway, Patreon should be coming along so I can pass the collection dish. Probably like an entry-level thing would be like $4 a month, a dollar an episode. That's something. I think a lot of you might, might get into that kind of thing. So this is the shape of a writing career, right? I'll have more to say about this next week. So it'll be a little more germane, but for now, just to know, let you know where I'm at. I'm ramping up, ramping up that game to take some agency in this climate. Ironically, freelancing feels more stable and certainly more nimble. In any case, that's where I'm at. I squandered my 30s, that great decade where the chess pieces are supposed to move in the right direction. In any case, I screwed the bishop, and what are you going to do? So like I said, Roy Peter Clark is here. This is a fun one. He came on way back in the early run of the show, and it's great to have him back to talk all kinds of shop, talk about his new book, Murder Your Darlings. He has a, he reads a sonnet he wrote, you know, how he's handling the pandemic, uh, how he's going about just how, how everything he's reading or writing is a workshop of some kind, which is a really great way to approach this line of work. So in any case, I'm going to get out of the way right now. Enjoy this episode brought to you by Scrivener. And let's, let's, go, let's go hear what Roy Peter Clark has to say. Let's give him a CNF and welcome. Um, surprisingly productive as a writer sitting here at my my dining room table um, which my wife says I can I can use every day except for Thanksgiving so uh... <laughs> oh, that's great I was gonna I, I was gonna kind of ask you if um, you know how you know what is it like uh, being you know a writer is it helping your productivity because I know there are some who are struggling with productivity you know bef- even before the, the the more social unrest hit us the last couple of weeks it was the the pandemic was putting people in a in a weird funk some people being really productive like yourself and others not knowing where to point their creative energies yeah aside for those those times when when I'm uh, I'm diligently writing a book, I would say this has been one of the most uh, productive periods of, uh, of my professional life. And I think it, it's the, it's a number of different things, but it's the energy of the news and it is the, the forceful requirement to pay closer attention to things than you have in the past. Uh, here in Florida, the sky looks bluer, the sea looks clearer, the animal life is doing weird and interesting things, including uh, especially the birds, and uh, and people uh, are behaving in ways, good and bad, that um, really, uh, I think if you're a if you're a writer, it, it just calls to you to pay closer attention and to try to make some meaning out of everything. So I've been writing uh, for different audiences. I've been writing for uh, for newspapers, for websites. I've been writing personal essays. I've been writing uh, analysis of uh, other stories. And I even... Uh, wrote a poem that got published in the local press about our, our circumstances. Since it's short, I wonder if I could read it to you. Oh, I'd lo- oh yeah, I'd love it. Go for it. Okay. So um, this is a sonnet, 14-line poem, in the Shakespearean style, if I may be so bold to say. <laughs> <clears throat> and it's called... House Arrest, St. Pete, Florida, April 2020. I feel the pounding beat of house arrest 
a sentence that we serve till who knows when. We do what all our wardens think is best and face a viral ban we hope to bend. We're stuck at home except to take a walk where seagulls croak their freedom overhead. My wife and I, we talk and talk and talk. I think divorce, but that joke's left unsaid. We live in times as fickle as the moon, who grins at us with all his pals, the stars. What month is this? Now April, May, or June? My God, please let them open up the bars. Pandemics are not so, so bad, I think. I hug my toilet paper, pour a drink. So um, when I showed that to my wife, she says, uh, <laughs> she rolled her eyes. Uh, which he saw the word divorce, but Peter Meinke, who is a friend and also happens to be the poet laureate of uh, the state of Florida, lives here in St. Pete, had a good laugh. And so that was enough for her. She understood that um, uh, that we were playing. So um, that's that's my sonnet and I'm sticking to it. Well, it's great to inject some sort of play into all of the the writing that you're doing, no doubt, because I'm, I'm sure some is much more sober, analytical, like you were saying. But then to have something of this nature where it is a different kind of sandbox for you to just stretch a different kind of muscle, but also inject some levity into what's a pretty heavy time. Yeah, I've been thinking a lot about what makes us react with a kind of a higher degree of interest and energy to a piece of writing. And I've been playing with all the usual words, words like news, um, words like tone, voice, words like theme. And none of them seem adequate to this sort of feeling that I have. And so uh, I've sort of experimentally working right now with uh, another word, which is not usually used in this context. And the word I've chosen is like spirit. So a certain piece of writing has spirit. Well, what does that mean? Let's, let's look at the word spirit for a minute, right? It's related to the word spiritual, uh, related to the in, in in Christian theology, the Holy Spirit is one of the uh, the persons of the Trinity. But the word comes from the Latin word to breathe, so it's related to inspire, you know, expiration, inspiration. That's it's all about helping you take a breath, making you take a breath, and filling you with something that you need to live. And I can't tell you how many times I've heard experts uh, in, the, in recent days, recent weeks, talk about, it, 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 talking about um, the, the importance of uh, of breathing, of taking a moment, taking a breath, inhaling, uh, exhaling. It's part of yoga. It's uh, part of normal exercise. It fights anxiety and the symptoms that come with it. So um, it's this. So so I think something could be serious. Something can be very, very serious, as I'll describe in a second, and have spirit. But it also could be quite lighthearted and have spirit. So it's so it's not we're not talking about tone, and we're t we're not the same writer can imbue uh, stories with completely different tones for different audiences with this particular feeling I'm talking about. It came about. Just a few days ago, during the height of the protests, 
when a former student of mine, Kelly Benham French, who's now a teacher at Indiana University, sent me a story written by one of her students. Uh, her name is, the student's name is Mary Claire Malloy. And Kelly said, you've got to read this. You have to read this. This is amazing. And so she's been sending out her students to cover various aspects of um, the current circumstances. And in this particular case, it was protests in uh, Indianapolis. So Mary Claire went out and uh, with a, a, a seasoned veteran photojournalist. Now, now, Mary Claire is a 19-year-old freshman. And she came upon, they decided to look at the scene of where there had been a shooting, a killing the night before. And when they got there, it was the daytime, they found a man with a mask on, on his hands and knees, scrubbing blood off of the sidewalk, which had been the site of, not only the site of a shooting, but where a man had uh, had died the night before. Now the man who was scrubbing didn't know who had been shot, what the circumstances were, but thought it was just disrespectful just to leave this blood stain unattended. Uh, so he went out, he bought stuff, brought it back, Scrubbed and it was really, really hard to get the stain off. And it was getting on his his clothes and his shoes. Later that day, he would learn that the man who had been killed was a friend of his. Oh, no. Jeez. So he talks about the friend. He goes out. He... He leaves the spot. He looks down. There's less of a stain, but the stain is still there. It's very stubborn. And he's determined to come back the next day and do his best to try to finish the job. Mm. Well, this was an amazing story. And I'm not, I'm just describing the kind of plot of the story and not its wonderful sort of language and and details and this is a young woman of tremendous promise and uh i wrote a uh a long analysis of some of the things that i thought she had done particularly well but i i said that what i get most from it is this feeling this kind of spirit of consolation. Uh, what could be more a more gruesome self-imposed responsibility than than cleaning up the blood, you know, of a friend? And yet, somehow, I come out of it being comforted and 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 even hopeful that something good might might come of it. I compared the story to a famous story, Brendan, from, well, it must have been 1963. It's kind of an iconic story in American journalism studies where Jimmy Breslin, the New York columnist, went down to Washington, D.C. to cover the burial of the assassinated President John Fitzgerald Kennedy. And, and rather than than watch all the famous people, he wound up finding and interviewing the man who dug the president's grave. Mm. I said, you know, I said, very different circumstances, but somehow in this column by this young woman, I feel the same spirit of consolation that I felt the first time I read the Breslin column. And I thought that was kind of a bold claim. And then 
last night um, I got a, a message, an email message from Kevin Breslin, the son of the late Jimmy Breslin, uh, sending along a note of appreciation and congratulations to Mary Claire for having written such a story uh, in the spirit of his father. So, boy, that was that was some day's work, and um, it it fills me with hope as a writer and a teacher that personally I'm learning something new about the craft, you know, every single day, including from a 19-year-old freshman at Indiana University. Well, it's amazing how the those kinds of sketches really illustrate the true humanity of it. It's also it's Gaetelist profiling the tuba player at the back of the parade. It's finding these uh these real touchstones that make us that really connect us to the people around us, not these highfalutin celebrity types, but you know, this this poor man scrubbing the blood of a friend that he doesn't even know it's his friend's blood quite yet. And then of course yeah. the grave the famous gravedigger piece. These are the pieces that resonate for generations, really. Yeah, and you know, it is the this so one of the things I, I mentioned, I, I had a, um, I was very, uh, I'm the writer and teacher I am because of the teachers I had. And my sophomore year in high school, I went to high school, I went to a kind of a, an elite Catholic boys school on Long Island, of Long Island, not far, not far from uh, Great Gatsby territory, if I may say so. Mm. And and I had so a Catholic priest named Bernard Horst, and boy, looking back, his lessons have stuck with me. And one of his lessons was, I think we were reading poetry of Robert Frost, and he said, "Men, since we're all boys, men, sometimes a wall." is not just a wall. <laughs> Boy, that's true in America these days, isn't it? <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Sometimes a wall is a symbol. Okay, so that was lesson number one. But lesson number two was, men, just remember this, when you're looking for symbols. As he wrote this on the board because you have to. A symbol, S-Y-M-B-O-L, need not be a symbol, C-Y-M-B-A-L. In other words, you don't have to crash it over the reader's heads. It can be subtle, almost imperceptible, but underlying something more important. And here's a story about a stubborn stain. That's a phrase from the story in the headline mm -hmm. that the man is on his knees trying to scrub away. And it's just, it's sticking to him and he's working as hard as he can and it just won't go away. It made me think of how many times the word stain is used to describe the racial history of the United States of America, starting with slavery in, in 1619, right? Like this is the stain, this is the stubborn stain on the soul of America. She doesn't have to say that, right? But the story kind of shows that in uh, in its own very, very wise and careful way. Yeah, and then er the thing I don't not that I ever I haven't read this piece yet, and I can't wait to read it. Um, but also, it's like maybe in early drafts, maybe it was more explicitly stated but it's one of those things where over the course of rewrites and with some maybe uh some help from 
uh, a key reader or a mentor or a teacher can say, you know what, like the mere act of you just saying what he's trying to scrub off the sidewalk, like that is the S-Y-M-B-O-L symbol and not the other kind of symbol. Yeah. And those are the things that reveal themselves through rewriting. Yeah, it's very true. I remember uh, I, had a lo- I had a lovely dog, a golden retriever, who who was great with my three daughters, wonderful. His name was Lance. And he, he, he died... Uh, he, he got sick and he died under very uh, sad circumstances. We have a 40-foot a tree that I'm looking at right now at a, my front window that uh, was was planted in his, his honor. But I wrote this essay about him years ago, and the last sentence was, I miss my dog. And um, my friend Tom French uh, read it and said to me, Roy, <laughs> we know you miss your dog. <laughs> you, you proved it, you know, in, in 2000 words, you showed us how many ways that you miss your dog. You don't need to say it. So that's always right. That, that's a classic issue for writers. Show. Do I show? Do I tell, or like a kindergarten student, do I show and tell? For me, it always depends on my mission and purpose, right? What I hope the reader will take away from the piece. Yeah, that's a, and you're you're someone who really likes a really short, punchy sentence. And as you said that, you know, I, I miss my dog. You know, I can picture you in a book of that that you're writing. Be like, all right, here's four words. They all have one syllable. Uh, you know, we're talking, you know, dog is right before the full stop. And, you know, in a sense, too, it echoes to me just read having read and then seen the movie of Shawshank Redemption of Red narrating when Andy finally gets out and he says, like, I guess I just miss my friend. And mm-hmm. it's one of those things where it's kind of a, the same sentences there, but they uh, one stayed in the movie and then Tom you know, it was just like, hey, Roy, the, your 2000 word essay basically summed up that final sentence. So it's so contextualized, but it's it's great to play those off each other in, in a craft sense. Yeah, this uh, it's it's really interesting. It's just something that how should I say this. You learn something at a particular time in your life and career, but you know it abstractly or you know it from a distance. And then there comes a moment when you need something and maybe there is this ghost, the ghostly recollection of past, which can be revitalized and can be brought uh, to the present. And that, that notion that the short sentence, that, that good writers often save their most powerful thought for their shortest sentence. The last time uh, I was in the, um, I wrote wrote something for the New York Times, which was uh, several years ago. It was about that point that the short sentence rings with a kind of gospel truth. And I learned that from, uh, and a conversation years and years ago between uh, William F. Buckley Jr., the cons- uh, conservative editor and commentator who had a PBS show firing line and was interviewing Tom Wolfe, the author. Hmm. And Tom Wolfe was talking about how writers can lie and how writers lie. And one of the ways they lie is with a short sentence because they can speak untruths and make it sound like the truth. Writers who write with a good purpose, a noble purpose for the public good, use that same strategy to kind of bring home an idea or thought or lesson. The New York Times, was it about two or three weeks ago? The New York Times front page on Sunday had 1,000 names of those who had died from the coronavirus. 
representing the number 100,000 who had died nationally. And it was a very dramatic chronicle of the dead. And it was accompanied by a column by Dan Barry, who is one of the best writers. He's one of the, he's a goat. He's one of the greatest of all time to write for that newspaper. And he was commenting on the loss of ritual and ceremony during the pandemic, right? Uh, simple things like parties, birthday parties, and but also graduations, right? Weddings put on hold, but most most powerfully, the inability to mourn the dead. Yep, and that this front page was was an attempt to compensate in some small way for that loss. And there's a point in the column where he, he, he writes, even the dead have to wait. Hmm. <laughs> now I'm looking at my arms right now and they are horripilating, which is the fancy word for uh, those, <laughs> those bumps that you get um, when something chills you. So, um, yeah, I mean, that's the power of the short sentence when it's used well. I love um, in, your, in your latest book, too, where, I, where you write actually in the afterword about, you know, of course, like Don Murray is one of your writing mentors and peers who always comes up in in your books and i love that you write that this this book took me higher and deeper in the craft than i thought possible it's interesting because i i devote my first book in this sequence about 12 years old now was written and and dedicated to don murray and his wife minnie may who were real they they were the godparents of uh thousands of writers at uh, all different uh, levels of development. And so I dedicated it to him and I sent him a, a copy of um, like a, a review copy. And he passed away just before uh, the book was, was published. But his influence, his fingerprints, if you will, are uh, are all over and one of the things that one of the words he he liked to use most was surprise he thought good writing was all about the surprise the thing that you didn't know when you first sat down to write but came to you along the way. The word, the phrase, the idea, the joke, the conflict, the insight, whatever it is. The other thing he would say is, and I think we both built our careers um, as writing coaches uh, around this idea that Every story is a workshop. Every story I read is a workshop for me because I read with my x-ray glasses on. I want to see things in a text that I can use. And every story that I write is, is a workshop because it, it advances my knowledge of the craft, of, of language, of storytelling, of audience, of meaning, of my relationship to the people who are closest to me in my life, but also my relationship to the public. Uh, and that relationship to the public is increasingly an important, important right now when there's so much at stake in the world with people living 
with such um, danger and uncertainty. And yeah, and you meant, you mentioned surprise, and of course that relationship with the public, and uh, and 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 what other and what other ways might you say that as you write this book took you higher and deeper into the craft than I thought possible? And what other ways did this did a murder your dar- darlings you know take you to those places that after all these years you're still you're still finding new things and uh, new things to learn and new things uh, in your own writing? You know, so, so there are about. Uh, this is a loose number I'm about to, to offer. There are about 50, 50 writing books. There are 32 chapters in um, Murder Your Darlings. So the, the title is Murder Your Darlings and Other Gentle Writing Advice from Aristotle to Zinzer. And I have to say that as I was gathering these books to write about, <laughs> there came a moment when I looked down at my left and there was, you know, a copy of Aristotle's poetics and I looked to, to my right and there was a, a copy of Bill Zinzer's book on writing well. And like it, it, it kind of blew my mind. I said, Oh my God, I've got a, a to Z right here. <laughs> my right hand, but you know the the power of that or the value of that was that it gave me not just alphabetic it not only fulfilled the alphabetical trope but it gave me three almost three thousand years of of literary history that was a wonderful i didn't i didn't plan that or anticipate it, but it became a a wonderful surprise now some of the books. I would say most of them are books that I was very familiar with and used over many years as a writer and a teacher. And it was pretty easy for me to harvest from a particular book a very practical lesson uh, that I could um, communicate to readers. Say, here's for me, this was the most interesting or important or useful lesson. Here's how I used it, and now I'm passing it on uh, on to you. But in some in some ways, uh, some of the books were brand new. Uh, they they were they may have been written a while ago, but I just r- recently found them. There's an example I'm going to share with you. It's chapter uh, 18 in a, in a section called Storytelling and Character. And the book is called Fables of Identity, Studies in Poetic Mythology. And it was written by a literary critic I've known about since graduate school. His name was Northrop Fry. He wrote a famous book called Anatomy of Criticism, and he's a Canadian scholar. Um, and it just so happened that two sm- small colleges um, closed, and uh, their small libraries were sent here to St. Petersburg to a bookstore in a mall called 321 Books, um, which I visit quite a lot. Hardcover books, $3. Softcover, $2. Children's book, $1. 321 Books. Hmm. So uh, I bought a large stack of books on writing and journalism from these abandoned library books. And one of them was this book. And it's a study of, uh, of various famous literary figures like uh, James Joyce and, and Milton. But the introduction was absolutely remarkable. And so here's, I'm going to read just a little bit of what I get out of it. So the title is uh, Write for Sequence, Then for Theme." Readers want to know what happens next and also what it all means. 
And then at the top is a little, of each chapter, there's a, what I call a toolbox, which tries to, in a paragraph, distill the meaning of the chapter. Toolbox. For as long as there have been stories, authors have played with time, and so can you. We say that life is experienced in chronological order, but that does not take into account dreams or memories. Stories have the power to distract us from daily life and plunge us into narrative time. Our experience of story time differs with each reading. Our first reading is usually sequential, a compulsive drive to discover what happens next. At some point, our memory takes control. What happens next is replaced by, what does it all mean? Those questions give writers a dual responsibility. We attend to both what happens and what it means. We move from scenic action to matters of theme, myth, and archetype. Okay? So uh, do you know the James Bond movie with Sean Connery, Goldfinger? Yes. Yep. Okay. So it was the first James Bond movie uh, I ever saw. It was the third that was made, but it was the first that I, my dad brought me there. And I really got to thank my dad for doing it because, you know, uh, in, in a conservative uh, Catholic family, it was a little racy, uh, should we say, right? You're right. And uh, uh, more than typical violence and more than typical kind of sexuality. Um, and uh, how shall I say this? I can think of a dozen moments in the movie, which I remember. But I really can't tell you what order. I can't reconstruct for you the order in which they appeared. That is the, the plot or the sequence. But what I'm, what I, what I can can render with great enthusiasm is, man, it was so freaking cool. It was really, this, this guy, this guy is so, so cool um, for a hero of a certain age. So I think that's, uh, as a writer, I have to really think about that, about how I'm going to, render the sequence of events to create a vicarious experience for readers, but also how I'm going to imbue those things with uh, meaning. And uh, we have lots of different words. In journalism, we have words like, um, what's the news here? What's the news peg? Uh, what's the lead? What's the headline? We, there's a technical term called the nut graph, you know, kind of sometimes uh, if you begin a story with an anecdote in the third or fourth paragraph, you kind of explain to readers why you're reading this little bit of story. But there's also um, um, in other disciplines, there's words like theme, there's word like thesis. So those things are... Um, I, I think all of those belong in a big box in my writing garage that has the word focus on the front of it. For Murray, focus was the central act. What is the story about? No, what is the story really about? What are the several important things that the story is about? that all attach themselves to one key idea or thought or expression or insight. So, um, you know, it was, it was wonderful uh, to read an old book that I didn't know existed, that I bought for $3, and that led me down a really useful path. What do you think becomes the challenge for a writer of any ilk, but probably someone who's more on the novice spectrum? So 
so a writer who might get sucked into the vortex of, of writing books, but never actually does any writing. I'm sure you've run into these people. What would you say to somebody of, uh, of that ilk? So I was once that person. I remember I was a writing coach, a young writing coach in 1977 when I arrived at the St. Petersburg Times, which is now called the Tampa Bay Times. And I was hired by Gene Patterson, who was a very, was a great American editor in the South and a a champion of civil rights, by the way, and uh, a, a great writer himself. Maybe arguably the best writer among newspaper editors of the 20th century. It'd be hard to find uh, somebody better. He was my hero uh, in many ways. He, uh, When he was in Atlanta, editor of the, the Constitution from 1960 to 1968, and think about what was happening in Atlanta during those years uh, and in the South, uh, the height of the civil rights, the classic period of the civil rights movement, and Gene wrote an 800-word signed daily column every day for nine years. Wow. I said, I, when I, 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 by the way, I published with a Southern historian, Ray Arsenault, a great collection of his work called The Changing South of Gene Patterson. Journalism and Civil Rights, 1960-1968. So I read 3,258 of his columns in sequence. And uh, I assumed, which, which good journalists shouldn't do, that he would have written two columns on Thursday and two on Friday. So, so he could get the weekend off and go fishing. He told me, no. He said, uh, if I did that, the second columns would always be too weak. He said, I have, I will tell you, he says, I've written many a column on a Saturday or a Sunday in a fishing boat with a line in the water. <laughs> so um, he, he brought me into journalism and I wrote a column on my 30th birthday saying things I'd like to do by the time I was 40. And one of them was um, write one good book. And I got my chance after a three-year experience in which I became a volunteer writing teacher in my daughter's elementary school. So I taught fifth graders to write using the strategies of journalism for uh, for three years. After every class, I would scribble for about 10 or 15 minutes into a little journal. And I accumulated those. And um, I didn't know how to begin, but at least I had my journal entries. And so on a manual typewriter, Children who are listening, uh, ask your parents uh, what that is. Uh, it, it's, the, it's that device that makes that wonderful clickety-clack sound. I, I opened up my, my journals and I, uh, I typed them. I retyped them to learn what was there and everything like that. So, so I wound up with 200 or 220 pages of, uh, of text, but definitely not a book. I was fortunate enough to be reading a collection of stories published in a book written by the New Yorker author, John McPhee, who is still writing now well into his 80s. In fact, I have a chapter that's devoted to him in the book, Murder Your Darlings. This, uh, this collection of um, the John McPhee reader was compiled and edited by a man who became a friend uh, named Bill Howarth. And what Bill does brilliantly is not just introduce these individual works to the reader. 
in the introduction, but he describes Howarth's, I'm sorry, he describes McPhee's process in detail. It's a fairly elaborate process, has about 10 steps. It, it involves index cards and files and decisions that you make at different points of the process. And I said to myself, hey, what do, what do I have to lose? And I followed that process every step of the way, a kind of meta recipe for how to write a book, which is one of the reasons I decided that that book, The John McPhee Reader, along with a new book that, uh, that he wrote about writing called The Fourth Draft, that was going to be in Murder Your Darlings. And I have to say that all the books I've written since then, uh, you'll find the trail uh, of that original uh, process to, to kind of encourage young writers or inexperienced writers who may want to write a book. I offer two pieces of advice. The first comes from, again, Donald Murray, who said to me, Roy, a page a day equals a book a year. No, that can't be possible. Yeah, we'll do the math. Right? <laughs> a book is like 60, 70, 80,000 words, right? So if you're doing a page a day, you're doing a thousand words every four days. Right? So uh, yeah, a page a day equals a book a year. So I, I like that concept. I built it into a lot of my work. I says, I'm not going to run a marathon for you, 26 miles, unless you give me 52 days. If I can, if I can do a half mile a day, <laughs> I'm your boy. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> so the idea of taking a big project and breaking it up into its, its smallest parts. The other thing I encourage all writers is to sacrifice for a while the idea of a first draft and substitute for it something I didn't make I didn't make up this term and I wish I could attribute it to the person who did but think about writing a zero draft a zero draft requires you to lower your standards at the beginning of the process and that's what helps you overcome any writer's block or any resistance that you might feel. I tend to write my zero draft. Sometimes I type them, type, you know, I type them in a computer, but very often they're on a yellow pad or in a spiral notebook. They're fast scribblings, which creates a positive momentum that I can build into a, um, a daily habit. Yeah, I love that idea of the zero draft, lowering those standards and everything. And that, that gets to a question I wanted to ask you about, like the advice you might have for someone who has trouble starting. It's definitely lower those standards. Um, I think something that piggybacks off that well for, for people too is those who might have trouble finishing books or manuscripts as well. So what would you say to someone who has trouble actually, you know, finishing this and not moving on to something that's a, a shiny new object? Once again, I can call upon my own experience to, I think, to offer a strategy or two. And it gets back to murdering your darlings. All right. So let's go to the origin of that term. It's one of the more well-known sayings about writing among us word nerds. And it's attributed to uh, a British scholar and author who was knighted uh, about 100 years ago named Sir Arthur Quiller Couch. Great name. And um, Sounds like it's out of Harry Potter. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And my friend says, uh, 
my good friend Don Fry says, uh, he says, Roy says, I think it's actually Quiller Cooch, <laughs> which is which is silly and and almost naughty. Um, but his, his students at Cambridge called him Q, which uh, not to be confused with the quartermaster Q in the James Bond movie. Okay. <laughs> so um, his advice uh, in a book uh, he wrote was, look, student men, uh, I think he was teaching men. He said, um, if you think of a very clever term of art, by all means, write it down. Don't hold back, write it down. But essentially, before you take, before you send it off to a publisher, take another look. And essentially, you know, make sure that it contributes to your focus and is not just merely decoration. You have to be willing to murder your darlings. All right. So in my chapter, I tell the story of um, a wonderful honor I received in 2017. I get a phone call from the president of Providence College, my alma mater, Dominican priest, Father Shanley, says he's going to, uh, he wants to bestow upon me an, uh, an honorary degree. And he wants me to be the commencement speaker. And he wants me to be the commencement speaker for the college's centennial celebration in a a stadium in Providence, Rhode Island, the the Dunkin' Donuts Center, known as the Dunk, the basketball (laughs) arena, where I would be speaking uh, in front of a mere... um, 10,000 people. Okay. So th- this was the this ha- this was the professional honor of my life. Uh, although I, le- I later found out that I wasn't the first choice that the first choice was <laughs> the Hamilton guy. <laughs> <laughs> there we go. What's uh Lynn Manuel Miranda? Yeah, yeah. Lynn Manuel. <laughs> How does a bastard, orphan, son of a whore, and a Scotsman dropped in the middle of a forgotten spot in the Caribbean by Providence the Poverty and Squad grow up to be a hero when the Scot? Yeah, I learned that. <laughs> <laughs> so listen, I don't mind. Uh, I don't mind being a, what do you call it? Like a, you know, uh, the, who's the actor who steps in? The understudy. Yep, yep. Um, <laughs> so, um, so I had three months. And I'm a putter-inner, not a taker-outer, which means that if I think of it, if it crosses my mind, if it bumps into me, I'm going to write it down. So I wound up with 8,000 words. Okay? Now, I... uh, for a first draft, 8,000 words would take about two and a half hours to deliver, you know. Uh, <laughs> right. uh, so I've got about 15 to 18 minutes at the end of a ceremony where people have already butt numb for sitting all that, that time. So basically the question is like, how do you get from 8,000 words to 2,000 words? And you know you can't do it. You can't do it by word editing. You can't. There's a lot of words in an 8,000 word draft that don't do any work. But even if you get rid of all of them, I, I still have 4,000 words. So, um, again, what do I do? Depend upon this idea of murdering your darlings. Also hearing in my in my ear, Don Murray saying, essentially, brevity comes from selection and not compression. Hmm. So you can't squeeze that text down. You got to lift things out of it. And I happen to have a series of anecdotes about my mother, 
who died at the age of 96, was a very colorful, very colorful, interesting personality who loved Providence College and um, loved my college roommates who were, who were there to, to hear me give the speech. I had this big emotional thing. And I just real so there were, in the, in the original version, there were eight anecdotes about my mom. Uh, all of them that I could put in a comedy routine that would be very entertaining. But as I started to, to edit, to select, eight anecdotes became five, five became three, three became one, one became zero. And as I say, let's say I'm going to find this in the first chapter of the book. My brothers, Ted and Vincent, offered their opinions on what mom would have thought about being elbowed out of the final draft of my speech. I should mention that Shirley Clark was very theatrical and wrote and directed many community variety shows. She may never have murdered a darling, but our best guess is that in some corner of heaven, she has Sir Arthur Quiller couch in a chokehold. So, um, yeah, that's, uh, and by the way, that uh, Murder Your Darlings, which I think is now about an 80,000 word text, was a 130,000 word manuscript. Wow. So this is a pattern. Now, Murder Your Darlings is is much too severe. You don't murder your darlings. You, um, I don't know. Put them in daycare. (laughs) (laughs) Just put them in a mason jar in the in the cupboard. It's like, well, no, 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 comfortable space for them. You know, uh, uh, until you need them, until they're useful. Yeah. Until they grow up onto the on the farm and can do some chores. They're dried Uh, beans. They just need a little soaking. Maybe sometime in the future. Exactly. You know. and the good part of that, from a book writing point of view, if you've got, let's say, a dozen extra chapters, you can generate individual essays um, in all different kinds of venues, uh, which will help over the long run to support the book. Yeah, I think as we wind down here, Roy, just to be mindful of your time, of course, and as we kind of take this plane and uh, lower lower the altitude, uh, I love this one line from the book, and this might be a great place for people to jump off and and run with it. Then you know, given that a lot of people have a bit more time, or certainly less distraction in terms of what we're able to do, given socially distancing and so forth. You know, you write at one point in the book, of course, not. Um, referencing what we're going through, of course, but you say, like, I pass it along to you. Go ahead, write your book. Welcome to the club. So maybe now is yeah. as good a time for anybody to take take all these wonderful lessons that you've given us and put at, put in our hands to go to go write that book, rise the tides, and be in this community of book writers. Brendan, thank you for sharing that because it captures very much the spirit. Getting back to that word, which I didn't have until a few days ago, the spirit of what I was, I think I was trying to accomplish. Perfect. That's awesome. Yeah, P, uh, Roy, thank you so much for the work. Of course, I, you know, I have so many other things I would always love to unpack with you. So maybe we can do this again when, uh, when the paperback rolls out and we can uh, unpack and tease out a few more of the lessons in this book that are just so valuable to everyone in the community of this podcast and certainly the community of writers at large. So uh, yeah, thanks so much for the work and thanks for coming on the show again. Thank you, Brendan. You call me anytime, brother. Well, that was fun. I mean, it usually is, right? But damn, that was a good one. That was fun. Thanks to Roy for the time and the insights. And of course, thanks to Scrivener for the support. Make sure you're all subscribed up to the show and pinging the show, following the show on social media at CNF Pod across all across the big three. And let me know what connected with you. Let's have that conversation that extends beyond just this podcast. Social media is lousy for promoting by and large, but it's nice for that interaction. I'd love to hear what's connecting with you. And maybe 
in some small way, I can help you in your writing journey. Of course, email me, creative nonfiction podcast at gmail.com or Brendan at brendanamero.com. Either one, your choice. And we'll start a dialogue. That's going to do it, CNFers. I might be approaching a new decade in life in a couple weeks, but one thing remains the same. If you can do, interview. See ya!